Hey Icon and Bay City, good to be with you today and we are back in the studio. So excited to not be in my basement. Uh, man, best day ever. Uh, we are continuing in our Father Abraham series. This is week nine for us and uh, excited to be wrapping this thing up and we are on the cusp of Advent. So today uh, we are going to look at Genesis chapter 21 and it is three little stories that give us a picture of the same thing kind of over and over and over, which is, uh, and this is the title of today's sermon, is Today's Pain Can Become Tomorrow's Joy. Today's Pain Can Become Tomorrow's Joy. And, and this is one of those things that is a universal human experience. Everybody has this story of something that was deeply painful that they went, gosh, I hate this, this is terrible, but in the end, became a source of real joy. So for me, uh, one of the ways that this has played out is when I was in high school, baseball was everything for me, right? Like I grew up playing baseball, loved baseball, and my junior year of high school, I got injured um, and I got cut actually going into my senior year of baseball, which is like, you know, the last year, right? So it was really important. It was devastating to get cut. Uh, and, and to be facing the end of my baseball career, my illustrious baseball career. Uh, and so what happened was I transferred schools. I went to a, a private Christian school, a smaller school. I killed it, honestly, destroyed. Uh, and that actually got me a baseball scholarship to go to college. So I went in one year from uh, getting cut from the baseball team to getting a college scholarship. And so I look back on what was a devastating moment. I remember crying in the locker room. I couldn't count on one hand how many times I've cried in public, and that was one of them. And then it turned into one of my greatest joys to get to play college baseball. And I just wanna say how many times, uh, as many times as possible that I played college baseball, because it's one of the things I'm pretty proud of. So. Uh, everybody has some version of this story, some pain that turned into joy. Here's where it gets hard and what we're going to talk about today. It is almost impossible for us to be able to see the potential joy in the midst of our current pain. Okay, we can look backwards on it, but we can almost never see the potential of joy in the current moment of pain. We just are blinded by our pain, even though this has happened to us so many times. There's a pattern in our lives and in the lives of people around us um, that we are just still in the midst of it, blinded by it. And we say things to ourselves like, it'll never end right? Like we feel that. We feel like it will never end. So again, I got coronavirus earlier this week and I was facing down 10 whole days of isolation. And I had moments where I was like, this is never going to end. I will never get out of this basement. And yet here I am, right? So we say it'll never end. We can't see any good that can come of it. So we have no perspective on it. We cannot see the possible, whether it's a silver lining or the good that God's going to bring in the midst of it. And so we say to ourselves, gosh, not only is this never going to end, but no good could possibly come from this. And then I would argue the most deadly thing we can say to ourselves of them all is you don't deserve this, right? We say that to ourselves. We say that to other people. And I would argue there is nothing more deadly that we could say to another person in the midst of their pain, you don't deserve this. Now, hear me. 
That doesn't mean they do deserve it. But when we think to ourselves, you don't deserve this, or when we say to other people, you don't deserve this, it immediately creates this dynamic where they see themselves as some sort of kind of cosmic victim, or if they're Christians, they immediately take on this posture of being a victim of God or a victim of circumstance. And, and, and man, that's deadly. And we're going to talk about why that's deadly. So this week, we're going to look at these three short little stories, all in Genesis chapter 21, that give us different kind of lenses on this same issue of seeing, uh, uh, seeing the potential joy uh, in the midst of our current pain. So let's jump in. Genesis chapter 21, starting in verse 1. Says the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. Now, this is this is the writer of Genesis going like, hey, y'all, this has been the theme since Genesis 12, right? Since the first time Abraham and Sarah came on the scene, the promise of Genesis 12 was you're gonna be a great nation, you're gonna have this land, your your offspring are gonna be as many as the stars in the sky and the sand on the shore, like it, you're gonna have this huge family, and here we are. 25 years later. And so the author wants us to hear the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. So God said he was going to do this and he did it. Might've taken him 25 years, but you know what? He did it. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old. A hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet, I have borne him a son in his old age. Abraham's a hundred years old. I'm sorry. That's old. I know it's not nice to say people are old, but hundred years old is old. And if you're a hundred out there, you should be proud that you are old, right? Sarah is 90 years old. It has been 25 years since God came to them and said, Hey, I'm going to give you a family. It's going to be huge. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be your family. It's going to come through Sarah. And man, there have been twists and turns and there has been unfaithfulness and disappointment and disobedience and all kinds of things. And I love this section at the end where Sarah is able to now in retrospect go, you know what? I laughed, right? When God told me uh, a year ago, God showed up and said, hey, a year from now, I'm going to come back and, and Sarah's going to be uh, going to have a baby. And she laughed. She scoffed, right? She laughed in a scoffing way. And now she goes, I laughed, but now people are laughing with me. People are, are joyfully laughing. Her, her laughter has gone from scoffing to joy. Uh, in this last year, God has brought about the miracle that he promised, bringing a baby to this very, very old couple after 25 painful years. Now, some of you know this specific pain that Abe and Sarah endured. 
Maybe it hasn't been 25 years that you've been waiting for a child, but it's been many years or months and years. I mean, it doesn't ultimately matter how long it's been. Any amount of waiting for the gift of children is painful, right? So you can identify with Abe and Sarah's. Maybe you are still in the midst of this and you look at their story and go, wow, they eventually got a baby, but you, it kind of in, in, in tandem with them, in solidarity with them, have cried out, how long, O oh Lord? How, why is this happening? Why is it taking so long? We want a good thing. We want a family. In fact, with Abraham and Sarah in particular, we want the family God that you promised us. Why is it taking so long? Now, in, in moments of waiting, there is one question that we all ask ourselves. The question is, why? Why? Why is this taking so long? We, we have to make sense of the situation. That's always our question. Why is God doing this? Why is it taking so long? Why have we had these struggles? Um, Emily and I dealt with infertility in our early years of marriage, and we struggled to get pregnant with our second child, and it was several years of trying. And so I, I, I can recognize this and understand this. And Emily would often lie in bed crying going, why? Why is this taking so long? What is God doing? Because we need our world to make sense. And so when there's things happening that don't quite line up with what we think ought to be happening, we try to figure out why. And, and the truth is we rarely know the reason why when we're in the midst of it. And only sometimes do we understand the why afterwards, right? Like sometimes we can look back and go, oh, okay, I see what God was doing there. I see why this took so long, but we can very rarely see it in the midst. And, and honestly, neither can other people. We, we don't know until the end. Right? So maybe you're waiting now for something. It's been taking months and months and months or years and years and years and you can't see it. You can't see the why, right? And you're, you're desperately asking God, like, why is this happening? Why are we waiting? Why, why are you taking so long? And I, I would say this, I have no idea why, but maybe... Like, I can give you some maybe answers based on my 20 years of ministry experience and 42 years of life having seen and experienced the waiting game and what often comes on the other side of it. So maybe, maybe God is testing your faith and you're not ready for that thing. Maybe God is trying to teach you something in the meantime, and he finally has your attention, right? Like pain and desire and longing have this ability to focus us in a way that often luxury and contentment do not. And so maybe God is going, yeah, you want this so bad, so you're actually praying to me every day. You have actually set, a time, uh, set aside time every single day to be with me, be in the Word, to pray, to listen. And it has been a long time since you've done that. So maybe, maybe we'll just do this a little longer because that's what you really need. Maybe you are too focused on the thing you're waiting for 
And he knows that if he gives it to you now, you'll only smother it or obsess over it or turn all of your attention to it and make it into an idol. He wants to give you the thing, but he knows you. And he knows that if he gives it to you right now, then you're going to make it the thing that it doesn't deserve to be, that it cannot bear the weight of. And so he's withholding it because it's not ready for you. Maybe someone else isn't ready. You know, it's not always about you. Sometimes it's about somebody else. So maybe there's a relationship that you've been waiting for and waiting for and waiting for, and you're going, why do I have to wait? I'm ready, God. And God may go, yeah, 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 you are ready. They're not. You're ready, but you don't want them now because they're not ready. Maybe. Maybe that's why. Maybe this is an opportunity to testify to your faith in God's faithfulness. Maybe you have an opportunity, even though you're waiting and everyone knows you're waiting, it's an opportunity for you to repeatedly say, I trust God. He'll bring, he'll bring this when it's time. And it's an opportunity for you to testify to the people around you because maybe they're waiting and they're looking to you to see how well you wait. And you can be a model for other people on how to wait well. Maybe. Maybe God wants you to appreciate whatever it is you're waiting for, and delaying gratification will only make it better. Right? Um, delayed gratification is a concept in social science and psychology that uh, correlates to some of the greatest outcomes and greatest successes in our world. In fact, most economists and most kind of uh, high performance people would say one of the key habits, one of the key character traits in a successful person is the ability to delay gratification. Right? It, 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 one way they often say it is it's the ability to choose what you want most over what you want now. Let me say that again. That delayed gratification is choosing what you want most over what you want now. Okay, and so this is a, a pretty central biblical principle. Jesus actually talks about this all the time in Matthew chapter 16. He says, if anyone desires to come after me, let him first deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? So Jesus goes, you want life? You want real life? Lay down your life. That the first move is to take up your cross and follow Jesus. And at the end of that process, you will experience the life that you really desire. If what you want is life right now, you, you can get it, but you will give up your soul in the process and any long-term gain. He says in Matthew chapter 6, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things shall be added to you. He's just been talking about food and clothing and all of the provision of God. He goes, here's the key. Seek God first. Seek the kingdom of God first, and then everything else will be added to you. It's delayed gratification. Understanding what I want the most is more important than what I want now. 
And so whatever it is you're waiting for, whatever it is you want right now, I, I would encourage you to stop and ask yourself, is this what I want most? Is this the most important thing in my life? Because if the answer is yes, then I'm with God on this in terms of his withholding it from you. Because as long as that's the thing you want the most, when you get it, you will turn it into a God which will ultimately crush it and disappoint you. It's not until you can say, no, what I want most is God and life in God. And that's what I want most. What I want now is this person or this thing or this job or this opportunity. But what I want most is God. And so I'm going to pursue what I want most, even when that means sacrificing what I really want now. So maybe God is trying to open your eyes to see what it is you actually want most so that you can pursue that thing. More than anything else though, we can learn that what we need most of all is God himself. And the same way that pain makes us go to the doctor, uh, this pain of longing, this pain of waiting can and should cause us to go to God. And see, what will happen is if, if we actually go to God to deal with the pain, we will find that the, the, the salvation, the solution, the contentment, the thing that lies underneath the thing, right? Like as whatever it is, that thing that you want, that you're waiting for, it, it, it's really just a means to satisfy some deeper desire in you. And if you can go to God, what you will find over time is that thing you thought would satisfy that desire is actually not the thing that will satisfy that desire. It is God who will satisfy that desire. And if you can just go to him and experience that, then all of a sudden that thing you've been waiting for will look diminished in size and importance. You go, oh, that's still a good thing. And I'd still take that thing if, if, if it was given to me. But what I really needed all this time was God because that thing can't do in me what God just did in me. So there is pain in waiting, but that pain can become great, great joy. Number two, the pain of injustice. Verse eight says, and the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. Back in the day, uh, oftentimes there was such a high child mortality rate that kids wouldn't make it to the end of their weaning, which is a word that I think we should bring back. It's a great word to say, the weaning, right? Like, so when the baby is uh, no longer as dependent on the mother, they're always dependent on the mother, even into their late 20s. Uh, but like physically dependent on the mother, they are weaned and then they threw this great feast, which I, you know, the more feasts, the better as far as I'm concerned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham laughing. Now, remember a couple weeks back, um, Abraham and Sarah got impatient and they didn't believe the promise of God that the heir would come through Sarah. And so Sarah went, Hey, we've got this servant. Her name's Hagar. She's not bad looking. Why don't you take her? And then we can have a child through her. And the son of the servant woman can be your heir. Abraham was like, okay, and did that. And so they had Ishmael and, and God uh, promised 
Abraham and Sarah. Listen, Ishmael is your son, but he's not the son. It's going to be Isaac and he's going to come through Sarah. So now we're a couple years past that and we're at this feast and Ishmael's a kid, right? Like, I don't know exactly how old he is, but not super old, right? Maybe a tween. Uh, and, and he is at this feast laughing, apparently mockingly, at this, uh, at the kid, uh, Isaac, right? So, you know, I've got a 12 year old, I've got a four year old. They laugh at each other all the time. This is normal kid stuff. Sarah takes exception to it, says, she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son for the son of the slave woman shall not be heir with my son, Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot, uh, which I have no idea how far that is, but that's a different time, I guess. Uh, distance of a bow shot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. This is a, a, an interesting story because we have here the kind of origin story of uh, what the Bible describes kind of the Arab people coming from the line of Ishmael. Right, So um, Sarah here has been jealous of Hagar and jealous of Ishmael from day one, right? Like this was her idea. It was her decision. Abraham foolishly and sinfully went along with it. But this was Sarah's idea from the get. And, and then immediately she gets jealous. So now Isaac is weaned. They're having this feast. Uh, Ishmael's laughing at Isaac because that's what kids do. And she sends them away. Abraham is bothered by this because Ishmael is his son. God comes to Abraham and goes, listen, here's the deal. Um, do what Sarah says, not because it's right, but because I've got a plan for Ishmael. I've got a plan for Hagar. They're going to be fine. I'm going to take care of them. And honestly, it's probably a distraction from the fact that Isaac is your heir and my plan goes through Isaac right? So I'm going to care for them, even though this is wrong. This shouldn't, this isn't how we treat people, but God tells Abraham, I got her, right? So Hagar leaves, wanders in the desert. I don't know if she got lost or whatever. They run out of water. She sits down. She realizes they're going to die. God shows up and God goes, listen, Hagar, I, I, I would never let 
this happen to you. I understand there was injustice, there was mistreatment, but, but I've got you, right? In fact, arguably, I mean, honestly, inarguably, she is ending up in a better position than she would have had she stayed in the house of Abraham because Ishmael would have just grown up as a servant kid. She would have grown up as a, as a servant slave in their household. But now God comes and has a promise of a family and a people. And she has this long legacy and Ishmael has this long legacy, grows up to be uh, this, this you know, strong warrior and a kind of a Bedouin people in the desert. So this kind of ends up well, even though it was born out of injustice, right? Like Hagar didn't do anything to deserve the treatment that she received over and over and over, right? The first time she was being abused by Sarah and runs away. This time Sarah gets jealous, sends her into the desert, right? Ishmael's a kid, hardly can be held accountable for laughing at a newly weaned three-year-old, right? And this, this pattern of mistreatment happens throughout the Old Testament. The Israelites are constantly being mistreated by one ruler or another, whether it is Babylon or Assyria or Egypt. This is the constant pattern of the people of Israel. And in fact, even into the New Testament, the early church was treated very poorly. For 2,000 years of church history, we see all kinds of ways in which Christians have been mistreated. And even now, around the world, we have serious uh, oppression of Christians happening in the Muslim world, uh, in, uh, throughout Asia, and even in South America as well. In fact, um, Hebrews chapter 11, verses 35 and 40, talks about uh, this, this dynamic in the scriptures and in the life of the people of God. Hebrews 11, verse 35 says this, Others were tortured, right? Not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise, God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. Injustice has been the story of the people of God from the beginning. And injustice has been the story of the world from very nearly the beginning because sin is part of the world and has been from the beginning, right? And, and from sin comes injustice, that we treat people in ways that God did not intend. And we oppress the strong, oppress the weak, the rich, oppress the poor. This happens over and over and over and over and over and over and over. The question is, how do Christians respond when we have been treated unjustly? right? The pain of injustice requires a response because most of us have experienced mistreatment or injustice, whether that is on a large scale or a small one, 
right? Like, honestly, I, I have some fear and trepidation preaching this passage because I have not experienced mistreatment or injustice on a large scale. God has largely protected me from that. But I, I can read like you can all of the stories, not only in the Bible, but throughout church history of the ways in which the people of God have been treated unjustly by Rome and Assyria and Babylon and Egypt and on and on and on. So the question for us is no matter how big or how small the injustice that we experience is, how do we as Christians respond? How do we respond to the pain of injustice so that, if you remember our, our goal, so that we can experience the long-term joy that God has for us? Well, the Bible talks about this quite a bit. Jesus in Matthew 5 says this, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, Jesus says, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. James, the brother of Jesus, picks up this theme in chapter 1 of James, verses 2-4. through four. He says, count it all joy, my brothers when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Notice how James connects this. He says, there's trials. Rejoice when you meet trials. And this is hardship. This is suffering. We see in the rest of James. It's really clear. This is hardship, suffering, injustice. He says, rejoice when you do that because, and he frames it as a testing of your faith. That is so important. How we frame the experience of injustice is massively predictive of how we will respond to it. Okay, If we perceive that injustice is a, a wrong done to us and we, 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 we have been wronged and treat, been treated poorly, been treated wrongly in some significant way, and that's the frame through which we see it, that we have been wrong, we are the victim of injustice, then we will respond to this moment that way. But if we respond the way James frames it by saying, hey, this moment of injustice, you ought to rejoice because this is a testing of your faith. What do you believe in this moment? This is a, a, a revealing of what you believe about the world. And James goes on and says, the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. I love this word because it is one of the least sexy promises in all of the Bible. Right? The, he goes, rejoice when you meet trials because these are testing of your faith and the testing of your faith brings about steadfastness. Right? The thing nobody has ever desired is what James promises will come on the back end of understanding through the right frame the suffering and injustice of our world. Steadfastness. All that means is you will be immovable. Not blown about by pain and struggle and suffering and injustice, but immovable. That the testing of your faith will produce strength in you. Right? He says, the, the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. 
That, that testing of your faith, if we see it through the right frame, this is God kind of revealing where the chinks in our armor are, where the weaknesses in our faith are. And he says, this can produce strength because you are able to identify the weakness, shore it up. Identify weakness, shore it up. And that produces strength in you so that over time, you that, that steadfastness produces perfection, completeness. By, by you growing stronger and stronger and stronger in your faith so that fewer and fewer and fewer things have an effect on you. Not that you become cold and closed off, but you become strong because you have seen these injustices and these problems through the proper frame, which is a testing of faith because all things are spiritual and you are not primarily just a, a, a victim of oppression or a victim of circumstance or a victim of injustice, but you are a woman or a man of God whose faith is being strengthened by you standing firm in your position in Christ while all of this is happening, understanding clearly that God is sovereign and he is doing something in you. So hear these promises. Jesus promised comfort for those who mourn. He promised the kingdom of heaven for those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. He promised reward for those who are reviled and persecuted and having all kinds of evil uttered against you falsely. Reward. James promises perfection. That at the end of suffering can be comfort the kingdom of heaven, reward and perfection. And this is just a sampling of what the Bible describes. Now, there's a, there's a temptation that we all feel in moments of injustice when we experience this. There's a temptation that we all feel to complain, to cry out, to protest, to, 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 to push back on the injustice of it all and cry out and go, this is not right, this is unjust, this is, this is improper, it shouldn't be like this, I shouldn't be oppressed like this, I shouldn't be sent out from my home like this, like Hagar was. And guess what? You'd be, you'd be right. You'd be right. But, but would we be better off if that was our response? to complain, to cry out, to protest, to shake our fist at the injustice of it all. If that's our response, in, we wouldn't be wrong. Those things are unjust. Those things are unfair. This is wrong. But is that the response that would actually make us better off? Can we complain, protest, oppose, object, criticize, and be comforted? Can we complain, protest, uh, oppose, object, criticize, and experience the rewards that Christ promises? Can we complain, protest, oppose, object, criticize, and experience the kingdom of heaven? I don't think we can. I don't think we can. It's one or the other. Why? Because it changes the way we experience the pain. It changes the way we think about the pain. It changes the way we engage the pain. We, we can embrace, endure, and be changed by the pain, looking to God to do his work, or we can complain, whine, protest, looking hard at ourselves the whole time, 
counting our grievances, thinking of ourselves as the helpless victim of this giant injustice, which may not be wrong, but is it helpful? Does it actually lead to the outcomes that God has promised for us? See, here's what happens. This is why, why James says, listen, count it all joy when you experience these sufferings and these trials, this oppression and injustice against you, because it's God at work. It's God testing your faith. It's God moving against you to strengthen you. And I can't help but think of a, a, a working out or weightlifting example because I do it so much. It's just always on my mind, right? And so I, I just think like there's no way to get stronger unless you have resistance. You simply cannot get stronger unless something is pushing against you. You have to put a rack on your back with weights that push you down and you have to squat down further than that, past parallel, and then come all the way back up, lifting that weight up. That's the only way you will get stronger. You cannot get stronger passively. And so you have a choice. You can look at that weight and go, that weight is against me. I don't deserve to have to bear that weight. And maybe you're right. Maybe you're right. You're right. You don't deserve to do that. You, don't, you shouldn't have to bear that, that weight. And, and, and perhaps that's 100% true. And while you are explaining why you don't deserve to bear that weight, you are getting weaker. Because see, physiologically, if you're, you're not regularly pushing your muscles to 90% of their capacity, you're getting weaker. And the same is true of your character. The same is true of your soul. The same is true of your mind. If you are not regularly pushing. And so God goes, I'm going to push. I'm going to push. So we have, a, we, we, we have a decision to make in that moment. How we are going to frame up the experience of that pain. We can go, okay, that's a heavy weight, but if I lift it by, with God's help and by God's grace, if I can see it as a means by which I can get stronger, then I will. If I see it as an undue burden I don't deserve, that's fine. It might be true, but you're getting weaker. The very instrument that God is using to make you stronger. And it is, it is just like God. This is the ultimate kind of turnabout, the ultimate jujitsu move that God is using against Satan because Satan intends for that weight to crush you. He loves the injustice. He loves the pain. He loves to see you struggle. And he wants it to crush you. And God goes, I'm not going to take away the struggle, but I'm going to make it make you stronger. Satan wants it to kill you. It won't kill you. If you look at me and see what it's for, if you can frame it up right, the way James says to go, this isn't you being put upon or something. This is an opportunity to test your strength, to test your faith so that you can get stronger. Jesus goes, Satan can't make this about your death. I make it about your life. It's an opportunity for you to experience life. Paul picks up this theme in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. Notice what Paul says. He's, he's acknowledging, listen, it's, this, this sucks, this hard, this hurts. Uh, we are afflicted, 
We are perplexed. We are persecuted. We are struck down. All of that is true. Nobody is trying to say it's not painful. No one is trying to say it's not unjust. No one is trying to say you weren't mistreated. None of that. Paul is admitting and embracing all of it. He goes, but, the but is so important. We are afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. He goes, we're given over to death so that the life, we, we die with him, as, as Paul says in Philippians 3, we die with him so that we might be raised with him. We experience the death of Jesus so that we can experience the life. We bear the weight so we can get stronger. This is the way in which Jesus has turned the tables of sin that was meant to crush, meant to perplex, meant to destroy. He goes, no, it's not going to do that. It's actually going to make us stronger. We're actually going to experience the life of Jesus through what Satan intends to be our death. So he goes, so death is at work in us, but life in you. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. And I love this line, for this light momentary affliction. What Paul calls a light momentary affliction is imprisonment, beatings, riots, stonings, being driven out of cities, almost drowned, shipwrecked. He goes, it's, it's a light momentary affliction. It's a, it's a hangnail, really, honestly. It's not that big a deal compared to, he says, for this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen for the things that are transient for the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal this the pain that you can see the injustice you can see it's transient it's here today it's gone but what you can't see that work that god is trying to do in you that's eternal so you can look at the weight on the rack and go, that is unjust. I shouldn't have to put that on my back. And, and you can see the weight. You can see the unjustice and go, yep, yeah, no, nope, I'm not doing that. And we go, okay, fine. Or you can see that that weight is preparing you for this eternal weight of glory, preparing you for eternal, eternity and a good that will last forever, a momentary affliction. Throw that thing on your back and get stronger. Let that burden do what Christ has made it to do, which is to make you stronger. So if you can, if you can, in those moments of pain brought about by injustice or mistreatment, look to the unseen, eternal things, you will be changed by that pain. That pain itself will change you into the man or woman you were made to be. You will, like Paul and thousands of others after him, be able to call your pain a light momentary affliction, preparing you for an eternal weight of glory. If you can see it, if you can frame it up like James does. Okay, number three, we got to hurry here. Verse 22. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. 
Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity, but as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servant had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until this day. Now, you may remember Abimelech's name. In chapter 20, which we preached alongside uh, chapter uh, 12, weeks and weeks ago, I think our second week of this series, um, Abimelech was someone that um, when Abraham traveled into his land, he told Abimelech that Sarah was his sister, not his wife. It was the second time Abraham had done that. So the last time that we have record of them talking, which was just the previous chapter, even though we preached it weeks and weeks ago, this was a, a, a situation where God showed up to Abimelech in a dream and threatened to murder him, right? This was their last interaction, okay? So these, these, they are not buddies, okay? But basically what has happened is Abraham has grown very strong. In fact, he says there uh, at the beginning of verse 21 or uh, 22, says, God is with you in all that you do. This is supposed to mean that Abraham has gotten very wealthy and very powerful. And so Abimelech now has turned and gone, I need to make a treaty with this guy. And, and we're going we're gonna to enter into covenant together. And we see through kind of the rest of the story that they do just that. They enter covenant together, that they'll protect each other. They won't fight each other. They got each other's back. They won't steal from each other. And they go through this whole ritual, right? What's crazy about this is that um, what, what Abraham has done to Abimelech just moments before was, was deeply, not just sinful, but threatened Abimelech's life, right? And then in the meantime, right, like this is literally a story of Abraham selling out his wife, giving up the, the mother to the heir of his uh, household and, and to all of God's people, just handing her over so that it might go well for Abraham. Right, And then in the meantime, God has blessed Abraham. He has cared for Abraham. He has made Abraham wealthy and powerful. And, and, and cared for him in every, in every way, which to me makes no sense. It makes no sense. Why would God, in the immediate aftermath of Abraham's deep and disgusting sin, why would God continue to bless him? Do we ever ask why when things are good? We often ask why when things are bad, when things are painful. We go, why? Why should it be like this? Why, why, why do I have to experience this? Why do I have to feel this pain? Why do I have to wait so long? Why, have, why am I experiencing this injustice? But do we ask why when things are good? When God blesses us. When God cares for us. When we know, I mean, we know what's in our hearts. We know what's going on in here. And when something good happens to us, do we ask why? Do we cry out and shake our fists at God and go, why would you bless me with this great job or this great girlfriend or this great opportunity when you know the darkness in our own hearts? My sense is the answer is no. My sense is when good things happen to us, no matter what they may be, we go, yeah, that seems about right. I deserve this. I've been good. I've been faithful. I've been around. I'm capable. I work hard. 
Whatever it is, we, we construct a narrative that makes sense of the good. But what happens when we see somebody else blessed who we think doesn't deserve it? We ask why. Because we construct a narrative that goes, they don't deserve that. Do you know what kind of person they are? I mean, this is a dude who literally just sold out his wife to protect himself. And, and God, you're, you're caring for him. You're providing for him. I mean, Abraham's going, well, I'm the chosen guy. I mean, I get it, right? Like, uh, yeah, that was a mistake. I get that. I own it. But I've done some other things that were pretty good. Saved lots. And, you know, I mean, I can't remember the rest of it off the top of my head. But there was some, there was been some good moments. And sure, I pimped out my wife on maybe two occasions. But, but largely, I'm a good dude. And everyone else is going, no, you're not a good dude. You don't deserve that at all. And so we ask, why? Abraham has repeatedly disobeyed God, demonstrated selfishness and lack of faith. Why would God bless him anyway? The answer? Because that's who God is. That's who God is. God blesses people because God is good, not because they are good. And man, that's good news. In fact, it's the good news. Because if we were honest about what was going on in here, and, and here's, here's the way we can be honest with ourselves. Would we want what's going on in here or what's going on up here laid bare for everyone to see? The answer is no chance. There is no chance I want you to see what goes on in here or what goes on up here. I know. I know the darkness in my own heart. I know the darkness in my own mind. I don't want you to know that. And yet, God has blessed me and continues to bless me over and over and over and over. And it is that gracious, goodness, blessing of God that tells us the most about who he is. Uh, turn with me to Romans chapter 8. We'll wrap up with this. Romans chapter 8, verses 18 to 39. Some of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Sounds a lot like the other passage we read. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes what he has seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes with us, uh, for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. 
for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. And here's our theme verse for this series. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And the answer is no. None of that can separate us from the love of God. Verse 37, no. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is no sin, even a sin as heinous as Abraham's. There is no sin, even though sin brings great pain and brings death to those whom it touches. There is no sin that cannot and will not in the end be made into joy. Imagine. Imagine your joy when one day you stand before God, knowing what you have done and what has happened in your heart and in your mind, and knowing that God knows what has happened in your heart and in your mind and in your actions and in your words, standing before him. And in that moment of despair, in that moment of being laid bare before God, that he calls you his son. And he calls you his daughter. This is the goodness of God. That even today's sin can bring joy in eternity because of the character and goodness of God. There is nothing, even sin, even death, that God cannot turn into joy if we go to him in the midst of it. While we wait and we wait and we wait and we experience the pain of waiting that that pain would draw us to the healer, to God himself. In the pain of injustice, in the pain of mistreatment, that instead of putting our head down and seeing ourselves and focusing on ourselves and the injustice of it all, that we would look to God, that we would frame it that way. This is something God is doing for us. And that even in our sin, our sin, not the sin done to us, but the sin done by us, that we would see God at work by his grace, in his love, turning even our sin into joy, knowing the depths of our depravity, that we will be brought up out of that by God's grace. The same way Jesus died on the cross for our sin, 
went to the depths of human depravity and was victorious, raising up on the third day, defeating Satan, sin, and death. What joy we will experience when we see his face. Let's pray. Jesus, we are so thankful for uh, your ability to turn pain into joy, to turn sin into victory, to turn our waiting into a celebration of your work. God, I pray that when we are in the midst of the pain, we would be able to see you at work. Not just afterwards, not in retrospect, but in the midst of it, that you would open our eyes and allow us to get whatever distance we need from our pain to be able to see you at work. And that we would face that pain the way you have asked us to so that we can grow from it and experience joy in the midst of it. We ask these things in your name. Amen. This teaching was recorded as part of our current sermon series at Icon Church. During our weekly gatherings, we move from the teaching into a time of response to reflect on and respond to the work of the Spirit. While we recognize it's hard to capture that in a podcast, we'd still encourage you to take a moment. Consider what the Spirit might be saying to you in response to what you heard. For more resources and details about how to join us on Sundays, visit iconchurch.org. As we say each week, Christ is all and we are His.